The following message is from the audio ministry of Coastal Community Church. We trust you'll find it helpful and encouraging. Now, here's Pastor Chris Rollins. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, Today we begin a brand new series uh, for the summer uh, called Summer Reading. Uh, Here's what's going to happen. Each week I am going to use one of six different books that we are recommending you to read, by the way. They're all worth reading. A little bit different than uh, at the movies, because I could really care less if you saw any of the movies that we used you know, during that series. They, they were really served as a, you know, as a springboard and a hook. But this is similar, and yet I hope that you do read these books, because uh, we believe that leaders are what? Leaders are readers, right? We want you to read. I want you to get good information. And uh, so each week I'm going to use the subject matter of one of those books as the subject matter uh, for my message that Sunday. Now, I realize some of you might be new today and, you know, I don't want you to freak out, you know, thinking that, you know, what's going on? You know, Pastor Chris is a heretic. He's thrown out the Bible and, and I'm, I'm preaching from other books instead of the Bible. So simmer down, take your medication, you know. <laughs> Calm down, don't send me a note. That's not what's going to happen. That's not what I'm doing whatsoever. In fact, if anything, here's what I think you'll discover. I think you'll discover a greater desire to be pushed toward uh, the Word of God, and the truth of His Word. And we're going to use Scripture, as we always do each Sunday, to do that. And, and hopefully to push you toward a deeper relationship with God. So let's get started. Uh, Today's book, uh, and I sent out the schedule for all the uh, OCD voracious readers here that want to know what the schedule of books is going to be. So anyway, the first book is this one right here, uh, The Case for Faith uh, by Lee Strobel. I love Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is a modern day uh, Christian apologist. Uh, He writes apologetics. And uh, an apologist is somebody who offers an intelligent Uh, argument or defense of something that might be controversial or something that's being attacked. And so uh, Strobel is a Christian, a a faith uh, apologist, apologetics writer. Um, Now let me give you a little background, a little backstory of Strobel personally, the author. Uh, He is an award, or he was uh, an award-winning journalist and editor uh, at the Chicago Tribune. So that's no, uh, no small uh, newspaper, you know, here in our country. Very influential. And, uh, and at that time was a self-proclaimed atheist. Uh, he was a legal editor. So he's an attorney's mind. He uh, was a, a, a well-known, uh, again, well-respected uh, editor at the Chicago Tribune. Well, Strobel begins a, a two-year investigative piece on the claims of Christ. And uh, over the period of time of investigating Jesus and the claims of Jesus, this legal editor you know, of the Chicago Tribune, self-proclaimed atheist, becomes a follower of Jesus. And uh, goes into ministry, becomes a pastor. In fact, becomes a pastor at one of the more influential churches in, in America and in, in Chicago at Willow Creek with Bill Hybels. He writes a book called The Case for Christ, uh, it com- becomes a bestseller, and, and I would really highly recommend anything that Lee Strobel writes. Uh, the Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for Christianity, and on and on and on. I would also recommend uh, his website, especially, you know, if, if you are, if you've ever struggled with your faith, if you are having loving conversations with people who are struggling with their faith, or if you just want to 
be a little better equipped to have those types of conversations. His book, this book, you know, highly, highly recommend. And on this particular book, what he does is that he deals with eight common objections that people have uh, to their faith about, you know, science and suffering and evil and, you know, uh, all kinds of things. It answers a lot of great questions that people have. So I would really encourage you to take the time and to read this book. Now, uh, I could very easily do a sermon on each one of the objections in this book and make it an entire series. But instead, what I'm going to do today, what I've kind of chosen to do, is to take an apologetics look at a very common question that people have today about their faith, one of our foundational truths of our faith. And that is, I want to I equip you, better equip you, to answer this question. Is the Bible even reliable at all? You know, is it trustworthy? Now, everybody's got an opinion about the Bible. I mean, you ask people what they think about the Bible, and the ranges of responses that you'll get are incredible. I I would be curious, you know, to hear from many of you what you think about the Bible. But even the most ardent skeptics and critics cannot deny its impact on the world today. Think about it. I mean, it is the best-selling, most quoted, most published, most circulated, most translated, and I would argue because of all those reasons and many, many more, the most influential book in the history of the world. Not even a close second. But still, is the Bible reliable? You know, can we trust what it says? In fact, today we are bombarded with all kinds of questions like, well, you know, how do you know the Bible isn't just an, you know, an ancient book of fiction, cleverly devised tales or myths created by evil men? Or since the original biblical manuscripts no longer exist, how do we know that the copies that have been passed down through the ages haven't been tampered with or added to? Or what makes the Bible any different than any other religious book? Well, those are all great questions. And I'm maybe just going to be able to hit the surface of them, but we're going to try to to answer some of them today. Uh, We're going to get started with the Bible itself. And what does it say about itself? 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It's on your outline. You can follow along on the screen. It says this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. This is an important verse. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I want you to notice that it says all scripture not some, uh, not most, you know, not the red letter verses that Jesus spoke. It says, all scripture is God breathed. Now you might say, push back a little bit and say, well, you know, Paul was only talking there about the Old Testament because the New Testament was still in process of being written. Well, no, he says all scripture. And you might come back and say, well, Pastor Chris, are you saying that you believe that when the New Testament apostles like Paul and Peter, when they were writing scripture, when they were writing what they wrote, 
that they knew when they were writing that what they were writing was scripture. Well, let's let them answer the question for themselves. Second Peter chapter three, there on your outline as well, it says this, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Now listen to this. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people sometimes distort, as they do the other what? Scriptures. To their own own destruction. So here's Peter acknowledging that what Paul was writing was Scripture. In other words, it's not hundreds of years later after Peter and Paul and the other, you know, gospel writers wrote their letters that a bunch of council members got together and just arbitrarily decided to throw some books into the Bible that they never intended to be there. No, listen to this. This This is important. The letters that make up the New Testament were accepted as God's word by God's people at the actual time they were written. But again, how do we know it's reliable? Well, there are hundreds and hundreds of books written on this subject. And there's really no way that I could possibly give you everything in just one short message. But here's what I hope to do today. I want to shed some light on this topic as much as I can. And I want to put it in the simplest form that I can. And I want to give you some, some reasons why I believe that the Bible is trustworthy. That it is reliable. So if you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, we can trust the reliability of Scripture because of its remarkable consistency, first of all. It's remarkable consistency. I mean, it, when you really think about it, it is an unbelievable miracle how this thing was written. You see, the Bible is not just one book. It's, it's a library of books, 66 total, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, across three continents, Africa, Asia, Europe, over a span, listen to this, of 1,500 years, composed by 40 different writers, ranging from kings and poets and prophets and uh, farmers and shepherds and tax collectors and tent makers and fishermen, all having different intellects, different insights from different contexts. In other words, parts of it were written from caves, in homes, in palaces, from prison. And yet, when it's all gathered together into the canon of Scripture, thank you, God, it tells one complete story. There is this beautiful consistency from the very beginning to the very end. And its central, overwhelming message is centered on one person, Jesus. Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself. That's what the whole Bible is ultimately about. The Old Testament, of course, focuses on the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. In the Gospels, we have his arrival in his early life, uh, followed by Acts and the, 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 the preaching of Jesus. And then in the letters and the epistles, they detail how we're to live in Jesus. And then Revelation talks about the return of Jesus all the way through. I mean, it is amazing. From Genesis to Revelation, you've got this consistent thread intertwined all throughout. Anybody want to venture a guess as to how in the world that could have happened? 
God. I love the way Peter explains it in 2 Peter 1.20. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, that, that phrase there, it's very interesting. The little phrase, carried along, it's actually a nautical term uh, used in, in Acts 27 of a ship being carried along or propelled by the wind, driven by the wind. In other words, the Bible is the result of, of these, these human beings speaking from God as the Holy Spirit propelled them, moved them, directed them in the way that he wanted them to go and what he wanted them to write. Again, I mean, the very fact that 40 vastly different people could write over a span of 1,500 years in multiple languages, multiple contexts, multiple places, and yet produce this volume unparalleled in unity and consistency. Man, that cannot be explained away by any other fact that it must be inspired by God. Number two, I think we can trust the Bible because of its incredible accuracy. It's accuracy. You know, sometimes you'll hear Bible critics uh, compare the Bible that we have in our hands today uh, to uh, the old whisper game. Anybody play that, maybe in youth group or with a, a group of students or, or kids, maybe even as adults in a group or something? You, what happens is you start off, somebody begins by whispering kind of an elaborate or detailed statement to the person next to them. They just whisper the statement into their ear. And then that person, in turn, whispers it to the next person, to the next person, to the next person, and it keeps going all the way around the room until it gets back to, and they actually would write down, you know, the original statement so they would have it. And then they would, it, it would get back to the, the end, it would be some way far out weird statement that has nothing to do with the original statement. Now, there are some people that believe that the Bible is really nothing more than the whisper game played, you know, over and over and over again, thousands and thousands of years where stuff has just been passed down and added to over the years. And so there's really no way of knowing, you know, whether or not God may or may not have said or intended to say what we have today. But can I remind you of something? Words written on a page are different than words merely whispered into the air. Now this is where it gets really interesting. This is where we have a firm foundation, okay? Now, intellectually, scholars evaluate the, re the reliability of a historical document using basically two standards, okay? The first, the first standard of judgment is the span of time that has elapsed between when the original document was written and then the, the oldest copy that we have, okay? And and then, that, that's, that's the first standard, that span of time between the original and the copies. And then the other standard of judgment is, basically, well, how many copies do we have? You know, how many manuscript fragments or, or you know, pieces of this document do we have so that we can make a reliable 
comparison, comparison and judgment. Now, you might not know this, but the Bible that we have today passes both of those tests, both of those standards with flying colors. In fact, you can argue better, better than any other ancient writing that we have today. Let me give you some examples. In fact, let's compare it with some other ancient writings that people today uh, accept generally as historically accurate, reliable, and trustworthy. Let's begin with some of the things you might have read in college. The writings of Plato, okay? You, you went to college, maybe many of you studied philosophy. Plato's writings date back between 427 and 247 B.C., Okay, the earliest copies that we have date back to 900 A.D. Now, there's a a gap there, a span of distance, of time, of 1,200 years for when it was originally written and the first copies that we have. Now, you might not know this. We only have seven copies available. And yet, it's a regularly accepted, uh, historically reliable, most people believe, document. Caesar's... uh, Gaelic Wars, written between 100 to 400 BC. The earliest copies we have are 900 AD. So again, we're talking a a span of time of about a thousand years between the original and the earliest copies, of which we have a few more. We have 10, okay? Aristotle, remember him? Poetics, uh, composed between 384 to 322 BC, Again, we have seven copies in existence, the earliest dating back to 1100 A.D. So that's a time span of 1,400 years. Now, what about this in high school? By the way, is that the rain? Is it raining outside? Wow. Okay. Uh, Thankfully, we had a beautiful weekend at the beach, and they're on their way back. So anyway, remember high school, reading Homer, Iliad? Remember that? Okay, listen to this. It was written in 900 B.C. The earliest copy we have is 400 B.C. So that's pretty good. That's a a time span of about 500 years between the original that no longer exists and the earliest copies. Now, but listen to this. This is really cool. We have 643 copies of Homer, which is pretty good. That enables them to make a pretty good comparison and make sure that it's historically reliable and accurate. So how about the Bible? How about the New Testament? Well, it was written in the first century. The earliest copies that we have are the early second century, about 125 AD. That's a a time span of about 50 years from from the original to the earliest copies that we have. Now, you ready for this? The number of copies that we have, you ready? 5,800. And then if you add in all the partial manuscripts, all the fragments, depending on how you judge that, it jumps up to about 25,000. I mean, historians place its accuracy at 99.5% just based alone on the external evidence. So the Bible that you you, you have in your hand and that you read, it is historically, intellectually reliable and trustworthy. Now, what about the Old Testament, Pastor Chris? You said the New Testament. Well, again, there's a long span of time, or there was, okay, between the original and the earliest manuscripts. In fact, honestly, it was about 1,300 years. 
And now for, for many years, although other documents seem to be trusted, Bible critics pointed to that time span. They said, well, hey, due to that huge span of time, there's no way you could really know that what you have in your hands is completely historically accurate. That is, until 1947, uh, when two Israeli teenagers in the Middle East threw a rock into a cave and heard something break. That led to the discovery of what? Anybody know? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Now here's why that was such an incredible discovery. Those scrolls rolled the time span from 1,300 years to 150 years from the original. Now, originally, the critics were all excited about this discovery because they assumed that when they made a detailed comparison between the earlier and the later manuscripts, it would just confirm what they believed all along, and that is that additions were made, changes were made, but guess what happened? The Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed that the later copies, the consistency was absolutely meticulous. So much so that it made the critics stop and realize, hey, maybe these copies actually do preserve what was originally written by the prophets themselves. Now, I know that's a lot of information and there's so much more, but I share just the tip of the iceberg with you so that you know that when someone today comes to you and says, hey, you know what, you can't trust the Bible. You know, no longer do you have the original manuscripts and everybody knows that the copies that were passed down, they've all been changed over time. Respectfully, they don't know what they're talking about. Respectfully, they have not taken the time to intellectually and honestly study the overwhelming evidence for themselves. In 2004, uh, there was a sewage break, uh, a, a sewage line break in, in an old part of Jerusalem. And uh, they were going to have to call Roto-Rooter, you know, whatever that is in Jerusalem, and uh, get the pipe fixed. Uh, they bring in a backhoe and start to dig. And when you dig in the old part of Jerusalem, you, you know, that's a big deal. And they took a few passes of the backhoe and they struck something hard. Well, they bring in all the archaeologists and they begin to dig. And as they begin to clear all the dirt away, they found the pool of Siloam. Now, the reason that's kind of an important deal is because for years, critics of the Bible believed that this was an example of something that could not be confirmed and really did not exist. It was just a figment of the biblical writer's imagination. You see, the pool of Siloam is important to you and me because it's mentioned once in the New Testament and twice in in the Old Testament. And, and, and that's, again, this, guys, I'm telling you, this is just the tip of the iceberg. I could keep giving you example after example after example. The Hittites, uh, Belshazzar, Daniel, the city of Jericho, even King David. Did you know that many critics of the Bible contended that King David was just a legend, a Hebrew myth, uh, 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 someone made up in folklore that wasn't an actual person? That is, until 1993, when archaeologists found a stone dated to 1841 B.C. that described the actual uh, lineage and household of David. And do you know what the critics of the Bible said? Oops. Oops. They also said that Solomon did not exist, that he was not a real person, and that was believed up until less than 10 years ago when another stone tablet was unearthed and it contained one of the receipts of uh, 
of a gift given at the temple. And on one of those receipts was the seal of Solomon. And do you know what the critic said? Oops. Oops. Over again, over and over and over again, archaeology confirms the biblical record. And some people like to say the sand is literally being blowing off of history. You know, incidentally, speaking of other religious books, the Book of Mormon, when it is subjected to the same test of historical accuracy, it fails embarrassingly. You know, the Book of Mormon, if you're not familiar with it, contains the story of this vast civilization that supposedly existed in the Americas here between approximately 600 B.C. and 400 A.D. And in it, it contains the names of tribes and cities and mountains and rivers in that civilization. And most Mormons just accept it and believe it lock, stock, and barrel. And yet, not one, not one historian inside the Mormon church or outside the Mormon church ever, ever has been able to produce one single piece of artifact or evidence that would ever substantiate anything in the Book of Mormon. What I mean by that is that the historical record cannot substantiate a single city, river, tribe, or mountain, or people group ever mentioned in that book. Thank God that the same thing cannot be said about the Bible. Which leads a lot of people to believe, myself included, that it's nothing more than a hoax, the Book of Mormon. The Bible, friends, has no trouble passing the historical accuracy test. But it's not just the external evidence. There is something internal about it as well. The Bible is prophetically accurate. The prophecies of Jesus alone confirm this. Of the more than 2,000 prophecies found in the Bible, over 300 of them deal with Jesus, the coming of Jesus, when he would be born, where he would be born, how it would happen, how he would be betrayed, how he would die. Let me put all that in perspective, okay? Mathematician Peter Stoner calculated the chance of any one person just fulfilling eight just eight of those Old Testament prophecies to be one in one in ten to the seventeenth power. Okay, that's one with seventeen zeros after it. And then he took it a step further and he said, okay, the chances of any one person fulfilling forty-eight of those prophecies would be ten to the the one hundred and fifty-seventh power. Okay, that would be like trying to find a single predetermined atom among all the atoms in a trillion, trillion, trillion universes the size of our universe. Your mind has been blown, right? You're like, Pastor Chris, that's math. I'm, I'm blown away already. Okay, but, and yet, listen to me, Jesus didn't just fulfill eight prophecies or 48 of those prophecies. His life, his birth, his death everything. He fulfilled all 300 plus of them. There's just no other book like it. And so when someone comes to you and and they question the reliability of the Bible, they better start questioning the reliability of um, a lot of other things that they read and hear about. 
And we can tell them that the Bible has an amazing, an amazing consistency in its message. We can talk about its reliability, its historical accuracy, and its prophetic accuracy. But I want to close by talking about one other thing. I believe that we can trust the Bible because of its extraordinary relevancy. Its extraordinary relevancy to today and to you. You know, the Bible really is an, an, an extraordinary book. And, and it's, it is so much more than just a book that you read. Man, it's a book that reads you. That reads your heart. That reads your soul. Hebrews 4.12, in fact, puts it this way. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it judges, listen to this, the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Let me close by saying this. If this book is true, it says some sweeping things about your life and about your eternity. For starters, it says that you and I have a destructive force in our life called sin. And if you don't do something about it, it's going to plague you and wreak havoc in you and in your life and in the life to come. And if you're honest with yourself today, I think you'd have to agree with the Bible at this point. I think you would just at least have to admit, you know, there's a dark side to my life. It's frighteningly easy to tell a lie. It's so tempting to cheat. You know, given the right set of circumstances, anyone is capable of anything. We can be self-centered without even trying. There is this force in our life that leads us to do all kinds of destructive things. And the Bible goes into great detail describing how horrendous that force is, how powerful and destructive that force really is. And the Bible goes on to say that you can try for an entire lifetime to clean up your act on your own, to try to handle your own, you know, on your own, the self-destructive force. But in the end, you're going to come to the realization that it was all for nothing. Because in spite of your best intentions, in spite of your great effort, you're going to discover over the course of your life that you don't outpower, outsmart, or mature beyond this disease in your life. The Bible says the only way you're going to overpower this force of sin in your life is to turn to Jesus. To turn toward and receive salvation as a gift. Receive the work of the Holy Spirit who enables you and empowers you by the strength of God to live in victory over that force in your life. But you're going to have to read about that on your own. You're going to have to be convinced about it in your own mind. And in your own heart. For what it's worth. And for some of you maybe it won't be worth much. But I want to tell you that I believe the Bible. That I believe it personally. Not just as a pastor. But as a fellow human struggler. I am totally convinced. Completely. Of the truth of this book. I've submitted my whole life to its authority. I've spent most of my life trying to follow its instructions carefully. And I want to tell you something. I got no regrets whatsoever building my life on the wisdom 
of this book. Now I will tell you that I have mountains of regret for the times that I have disobeyed that book, this book, and paid the price for it. This book has led me to a saving relationship with Jesus where I've discovered and know that my sins are forgiven and that destructive force of sin has been broken in my life. It has shown me how to build my marriage, how to raise my children, how to build friendships that last, how to handle money, how to treat my body, how to reconcile relationships. This book has comforted me in great sorrow, strengthened me in terrible weakness, rebuked me when I was wayward, confirmed me when I've been on track. It has given me a perspective for my past. It has given me wisdom for today and my present. And it's given me a great, great hope for the future. I honestly don't know what I'd do without this book. I love it. I submit my life to it. I respect it. I read it. I study it. And with the help of the Holy Spirit, I I plan to follow it and what it says carefully for the rest of my life. Now you've got a choice to make. What are you going to do with it? Sure, it's unique. I believe it's accurate. And I believe it's inspired. Every week... I am a pastor, and every week I deal with the wreckage of human lives because this book is violated. Because at some point people say, I'm going my way. I know what God's word says, but I think I'm smarter. Friends, after years of seeing people pay the price when they don't live by this book. I have no problem saying, for God's sake and for your sake, read it, cherish it, and live by it. You've been listening to a message from Pastor Chris Rollins of Coastal Community Church. For more information about Coastal or to explore what your next step of faith might look like, check us out online at coastalcommunitychurch.org. From Pastor Chris and the family at Coastal Community Church, thanks for listening.